0: This is Aspen Waite Media and today we're bringing you the second part of our exciting new series, eight-part series, which is charting the birth of the English nation from somewhere around 450 when the Anglo-Saxons first came into, into England really uh, through to that momentous sea change that was the Battle of Hastings in 1066. My name is Paul Waite and I'm joined as always by the great Viking himself Uh, it's almost like uh, Harold Hardrada never died and he he was preserved for a thousand years to come back in the form that is Callum so it's I feel it's such an honor for Aspen Wake to have such a great Viking warrior uh, present on the show so hello Callum how are you today I'm good thanks chap how are you I see you're not talking in your Viking voice, which is quite good because it can be a bit disconcerting when Callum goes into his full Norse thing. He's he's quite threatening when he when he goes berserker. I've been seen to run many many miles away from him. Uh, these days it becomes <laughs> becomes a limp. Anyway, so without further ado, so we're in we're now back in 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 England in somewhere around the year 600. Um, just to set the scene from last week. Uh, Britain was obviously became a Romano-British kingdom uh, very much uh, uh, absorbed into the culture of of the Romans Uh, the Romans then uh, had had bigger things to worry about so they basically upped and left um, Britain and that that took place in about 410 AD uh, uh, because they were being um, attacked by the Goths, the Visigoths, the Vandals uh, and various Germanic tribes Uh, Interestingly, uh, the Anglos and the Saxons and the Jutes, etc., had been prominent players as mercenaries in the Roman armies, particularly in Britain, and so the peoples had been used to travelling to the British Isles over quite a long period of time. Because of the dominance of uh, the Roman culture, and also the um, inherently tribal nature of the British tribes prior to uh, the Romano conquest, uh, when the romans left this left the island pretty vulnerable i would say uh and of course uh the north the north european peoples it's best to call them that looked with cunning and fond eyes across the seas to the beautiful green countryside that is england and and so uh in, in over 450 to 600 etc uh the anglo saxons jutes and frisians really are the main peoples here um they traveled over from the area that is now uh denmark uh germany Frisia, uh, a little bit of uh, holland uh and, and 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 initially um probably were more sort of conquering type people coming over as war with war bands uh and then as they became more established uh then they would bring their women and their children and the farmers would follow and so we get to a point by by today, where basically the Anglo-Saxon culture uh, is now dominant. Um, very interesting as we as we discuss. Very interesting thing in history because at no point does it seem, from the records we have, that they ever became anything like the dominant people. They were heavily outnumbered, even at their peak, by the indigenous people of the time. But uh, I suppose because there was there was no real um solidity to the structure of uh post-roman british british people um effectively uh the, the the britons that stayed in england basically became saxon i mean that's the only way they they basically became no different to uh to the invader and so um i think is is it uh was england referred to as the heptarchy callum i think that's right isn't it Do you know have you heard of that site that that, that phrase
1: um, it does ring a bell, but to be honest, I'm not 100% sure on that one.
0: I think Heptarchy means seven kingdoms. So um, by the time we get into the 7th century, uh, we've basically got Kent, Sussex, Essex, um, Northumbria, Mercia and uh, Wessex, uh, with uh, Cornwall referred to as the West Welsh. And then interestingly, um, c- considering our our wake paternal line, Callum, um, Cumbria itself was was never actually part of that whole structure, and was was actually mm. more uh, aligned to Strathclyde, for instance, uh, and and and, mm. and and probably was looking north more than south. Yeah. So um, so as I say, we 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 get to a point where um, uh, England has become dominated by the invading uh, North German tribes. Let's call them that. Um, so. You've done a lot of work on um uh, how these people sort of operated, their 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 structure of government, um how they went yep. about their daily lives, the things they ate. So um let's 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 start off with um you know, what do these people look like? What did they do? What was their what how do they have fun? You know, what did they eat, these sort of things. Okay, so the general
1: consensus is they were very tall people. On on the whole they were fair haired. Um, in terms of what they would carry around, they would have lots of long tunics, round shields, spears and swords were their favourite weapons, mm-hmm. um, helmets, um, So just to sort of tie into everything nice and neatly. <laughs> so obviously, when, when they first arrived on the scene, there were lots and lots of Roman towns mm-hmm. all over the place. And I, I do really think it's really interesting that they chose not to use these yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, but I think you, you can see why. I mean, the, these were very culturally advanced people, um, but it would, uh, it would have been very, very hard for them to integrate themselves into the Roman towns. You've got to bear in mind that the Roman towns at the time wouldn't have been dissimilar to, or a Roman house, it wouldn't have been dissimilar to explaining a house of modern day. Mm. So Roman houses were made of brick or stone. Um, they had tiled roofs. Mm-hmm. They even had glass in their windows and had underfloor heating. Yep. So, I mean, it's quite really, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, the Romans were amazing people. Yep. I mean, to, to hear that in modern day and to hear that this was over a thousand years ago is, is really quite astonishing stuff. Yeah. So I think the anglo Saxons just didn't understand the Roman ways. Um, and so the, the, the towns, the villas, the streets and the baths were often forgotten. They fell into ruin, covered with weeds which in itself would have really seemed quite like um mysterious and magical A 100 or 200 years afterwards to have been wandered through these places would have seemed really quite eerie i imagine and yeah. i knew that there are some tales from saxons and vikings which um explain some of um the uh the roman towns such as bath is, as being uh, like ancient places yeah. um built by giants
0: yeah yeah
1: but anyway i digress um so the anglo-saxons uh, lived in small villages. they, they built lots of villages. Um, they built their houses out of uh, mainly wood um with uh, roofs thatched with straw. Yeah. Um, they really utilized the fact that at the time Britain was completely covered with forest, you yeah. know, so everything they everything they could they they made with wood, really. Um, they their their houses only had one room where everyone ate, slept, cooked, and entertained. Um, all of their houses were built facing the sun right. to uh, get as, as, much, as much heat and light as possible. Um, so they would have had a, a small village with several houses. Um, the biggest house in the village would have been called the hall, mm-hmm. which was the chief's house. And he would have lived there with all of his uh, warriors.
0: Yep.
1: Um, the hall would have been long, wide and smoky. <laughs> uh, they would have had a fire and a stone in the middle. Um, the windows slits were called eye holes on the walls. There would have been shields, antlers, um, you know, th- things that they had, they had won through conquest mm-hmm. and, you know, large beasts that they had slain. You know, if there was like a particularly large wolf or something, you know, yeah. they would uh, put that up on, on its wall. Um, the, 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 would have been quite dirty on the floor. I imagine they often, <laughs> they often would have kept their um, animals inside with them yeah. in um, the cold and definitely um but the, on, on the whole that the, the villages were quite small um they wouldn't have had more than a couple of hundred people living there at a time
0: okay and um yeah so um you know uh, did did these people often eat together with you know you see you see in sort of films and things like last kingdom and the vikings you know scenes of uh, the great hall and people congregating around is that more true or did the average average uh, anglo-saxon person eat their their provisions in their own in their own little dwellings well they, it's, it's definitely true to say that they loved
1: having company um, and they loved having parties um, in fact they have they have some great words for it actually um, we can talk about that in a, in a bit they had a, a word that they really liked um, that in old English was "cumfiorum," Fuorum and that meant house guest um, okay. or visitor um come that the come part just means comer so pretty straightforward and um fjorm sort of means like strangers supplies so this would have been like a, a common word that they would have used um so that, that you know they would have said oh you know uh, we need to a- arrange for the cum fjorn and they would have had sort of, uh, meat and and ale and and uh and mead and everything arranged um so, yeah they definitely would have uh had lots and lots of feasts in, in the in the chief's hall, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, the food was cooked over a fire in the middle of the house um, where the, the meat was roasted. Um, they drank primarily ale and mead. Um, the ale would have would have been fairly weak because they would have drank it all day long, obviously. The rivers at the times were quite polluted and stuff. So really, from the moment they got up in the morning to the moment they went to bed at night, they drank ale. They deliberately made it quite weak because obviously otherwise yeah. they would have all been uh, be drunk all side, stumbling yeah. around. Yeah, which would have been quite fun, but not very productive, I suspect. So their their main st- strong alcohol they drank was mead. Um, obviously, it's made made of honey. And they would have drank it in great goblets and drinking horns. Um, as, as I said, touched on last week, while they were doing this, um, a minstrel would usually play harp. And they would often be singing songs of battles and of heroes um yeah they some it's, it's worth mentioning some people did drink wine um but all of this was imported from the mediterranean mm. so you would have had to have been a very very wealthy you know one of the one of the kings of the um of the kingdoms of the seven kingdoms yeah, yeah. you would have really had to have been <laughs> them or are very up thing to to afford such a thing
0: so um, you, you talked about the meat. So, what sort of meat did they eat, uh, and did that include game and uh, f- you know, fowl and fish, etc.?
1: Yeah. So the, the food that would have, the meat that would have been primarily eaten at the time was boar, deer, and pig. Um, so the pigs, they, they obviously were very great farmers. The Anglo Saxons were great farmers. Um, they farmed all the same animals that we farm today, um, but they they very much liked their their pork what they with with um beef and chickens and stuff they would use the they would use the cows and the chickens primarily more for you know like milk and eggs and then once they got old then they would kill them and they would eat the meat the meat whereas they used to farm pigs you know just just for the meat itself um other than that yeah they would they would have hunters in the village and they would go out and they would uh hunt boar and deer um so yeah those are the three meats um they also used to eat quite a lot of fish so you know from all the, from the rivers and the seas yeah. so quite diverse lot of m- muddy fish yeah m- m- obviously yeah from the rivers but they they would um for the people that live near the sea for the people that live near the sea they would fish in the sea as well mm-hmm. so that would have probably been a, a, a bit tastier <laughs> but um i i think it's uh you know they, they really were quite good um you know farmers they, they um they cultivated lots of um, cereals and stuff. They, they would have eaten bread with every single meal. Yep. Um, they uh, farmed lots of wheat and rye, barley, um, oats. They ate lots of porridge, and they also used the oats to, as animal feed. Um, the vegetables that would have mainly been eaten at the time, obviously, there were no you it know, exotic foods. So they didn't have p- potatoes, tomatoes, bananas, pineapples. Um, they would have eaten carrots, parsnips cabbages peas beans onions they would have made lots of like m- meat stews with um, bar you know the-, the leftover barley from the ale um, and made lots of like you know healthy stews. Um, I think I think um, f- for our modern taste buds it- it's very worth mentioning that obviously they didn't have sugar at all in Britain at the no. time um, so they really relied on honey yes. and things like parsnips to sweeten everything. So the Anglo-Saxons loved honey. They used <laughs> to put honey on everything. They really did. Um, so yeah, you can imagine you go to the you uh, know, you go to the the hall in the evening. Um, there'd be a big fire in the, in the middle, probably with um probably with a, a pig on a you know, roasting. Um, and you your typical meal would yeah, you'd probably have like a bowl of, you know, you'd have pork, carrots, parsnips, sure cabbage peas beans onions and then you know they also often ate things like apples cherries plums
0: um can yeah I, I think it's yeah sorry so can i over- overview at that point please mr viking so um yeah just for the viewers i think um so one, one of the things they used to eat a lot of was peas pudding so lot, lots of very pea-based uh things they would love mushy peas and chips i expect mm-hmm. um an interesting thing in the same way they didn't have potatoes the carrots of course weren't orange uh, the carrots, I believe, are either white or a sort of a purpley colour. I think that's right to say that. Um, and of course, the thing that's quite interesting, Callum, is, um, you know, you think about, uh, you know, the environmental issues we have today and people quite rightly being concerned about uh, greenhouse gases and pollution. Uh, so I, I find it rather bizarre that, um, you know, uh, just to set the scene here now, I think this is quite interesting for people listening to our little show, Um people they estimate that around in around four hundred a d the population of England was about four million um and but by the time the of the Norman conquest in ten sixty six there weren't even two million people uh in the country um and i think um no one will ever know exactly for sure why that happened but um there are some reasons for that, so one of them would be um there were uh plagues and pestilence. Prevailing throughout the whole of Europe, uh, throughout the period we're in today, which would have decimated the population. Uh, obviously, uh, the life expectancy uh, at this time was very poor. In fact, uh, the average Anglo-Saxon was expected to live for about 35 years. 48% of Anglo-Saxons didn't live beyond the age of 10. Uh, uh, so, so I, uh, so I believe. Um, and, of course, once you got to a decent age, then I think if you got to 20, you know, you would you had a very, very, very good chance of getting to 40. And if you got to 30, you would almost certainly live to 50. And I've done a bit of uh, research on some of the more um, famous people of this period. You know, and you do get people living to 70, etc. And, of course, if you look at our favourite, you know, our favourite little Anglo-Saxon Dane, Utred of Bebemberg, um, he's still fighting... Uh, well into his late 50s for instance so he's well, he's be- definitely not not dead i think it's, so i think um it would be reasonable to assume and I, and, and uh, disagree with me if if i'm wrong in saying this one of the reasons why the water would have been unsafe would have been their own ignorance um so because they had the animals um basically you know with them so closely with them uh, the animals would clearly have um uh done their business, shall we say, uh and that would have polluted the uh the the water that was available to them. Um and as you say that meant pretty much that uh it was very rare for people in this period to actually drink fresh water and therefore they, they had no choice but to to drink ale, which of course carried on right through um right up into ah. right into really the nineteenth century I would say. Um, you know, that that sort of that sort of thing. Um, one of the more gory things I've read about, which um, is very interesting, is I think it's true to say that the average Anglo-Saxon had up to one hundred tapeworms in their body, um, and I've read about um, people with them coming out of their eyes and all sorts of other orifices. Um, and there was I read a quote in uh, I think in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was something about um, for every three calories that the Anglo-Saxon uh, ingested, it was two for the tapeworms and one for them. And so uh, it was very rare for uh, a, a, an Anglo-Saxon of this period to be obese. Um, so they tended to be quite lean and mean, and obviously probably not very well because um, they were, uh, you know, they were so blighted by these tapeworms, etc. Uh, so disease, disease was was quite rife. Uh, obviously, didn't have uh, any antibiotics or any anything really. Um, other than natural. I think the other thing that's quite fun, uh, I don't know how much you know about this, is um, you were talking about bread and how important it was. And, of course, it was probably the the staple diet of the real poor people of this period. But they used to put some really, really funny things in it, you know, like hallucinogenic uh, things. Um, So you almost, like, had cannabis bread and, like, tripping bread. I don't don't know that they realised that's what they were doing, but because uh you know they, they obviously used what was what was available to them have you have you any experience of that um well, no, not particularly I, i'm sure what they
1: would have i expect it was mushrooms psilocybin mushrooms i suspect that well, they things would like have.
0: Bergamot and all sorts of um you know the things that go yeah. gastrobray things you'd call them you know
1: there are a lot there are lots of um like you know spores and stuff that have a slightly hallucinogenic effect obviously um um i'm sure like a lot of people listening will have heard of um you know even if you find like, antique books and you open them up um even the spores that that grow on antique books on the paper um can can give you a mild hallucinogenic effect um now obviously we know that um it's more associated with um Scandinavians but um Anglo-Saxons and and um and the Norse people they did uh, partake in the taking of psilocybin mushrooms which um obviously some used to get them help get them into a berserker state but I mean these were people that they, they they worked hard but they partied harder, you know so you know we were talking about their their parties in the halls they would have definitely as, along with drinking their mead and and their ale they would have um, had psilocybin mushrooms and stuff and maybe you know some um some some clever little baker thought oh'll I'll, I'll put a couple of these ingredients in the bread as well yeah um i think... I, I, I hadn't read anything about that um myself specifically but i'm I'm sure you're giving drew some
0: ideas <laughs> yeah i think um yeah, yeah. next thing i'd like to, like you to talk about is the sort of way they structured their society and how they were ruled i think it's um you know uh it's it's fair to say one of the reasons actually why uh without giving up too much away in in future shows one of the reasons why um the Normans were able to um Fairly easily, without that many people actually take over uh, England, was it was incredibly well run administratively. It was fantastic. We had a, a brilliant uh, justice system. Uh, everything, you know, the administration system was perfect. So, tell us a little yeah. bit about that. So, how, you know, was how, was there, were there local kings? Uh, was there a local lords? Um, you know, how, how did the society sort of structure itself from bottom up?
1: Yeah, sure. So.
0: Yeah, as you said, Anglo-Saxon kings
1: were prolific legislators um, and a number of law codes survive from the 7th right up to the 11th century. Um, The earliest laws have much in common with what we know as like continental Germanic law, including things like um, a personal injury tariff um, or compensation for various kind of bodily injuries, for example. Um, Under 7th century Kentish, Kentish law, um, the sum of twelve shillings was payable for cutting off, off, off an ear, <laughs> thirty shillings for disabling somebody's shoulder, and fifty shillings for putting out an eye. Um, you know, so as I said, they were really prolific legislators. Um, homicide required payment of the wear, of what was known as the were guild, which translates to man price, um, a sum which varied according to social class. Um, The Anglo-Saxon settlers had brought with them the Germanic system of blood feud, whereby the relatives of a murder victim could be expected to to avenge them. Um, One of the aims of the early laws was to reduce the number of revenge killings by substituting a scale of financial compensation. Mm. Um, so I mean I think we have this idea of them as being you know it was of being like almost like a completely lawless society I think it's te- mm-hmm. tempting nowadays to see it like that but really it would have been quite similar to nowadays in terms of how they dealt with everyday <laughs> situations you couldn't just go up to somebody who disliked and kill them and there'd be no repercussions mm. um as I said you'd be heavily heavily fined and punished just for um you know just for like injuring injuring somebody's shoulder for example you know okay. um The later Anglo-Saxon laws reflect the growing influence of the church, um, as, for instance, uh, the introduction of fines or offences against um, uh, religious officials and a preference for mutilation over the death penalty um, in order to give the offender time to repent, which is uh, nice. (laughs) Um, Laws were also um, issued to enforce religious practices such as infant baptism, fasting, Sunday observance, um, and practical benefits can be seen in the granting of religious festivals as holidays, things like that. Yeah, I think it's um, important to say that laws on marriage were fiercely regulated um, to forbid unions between relatives um, or those connected with godparents. It was very frowned upon. Um, And whereas a woman who committed adultery during the seventh century would would be uh would be penalised financially. Um, but Later on, under Canute's law, um, a woman would have actually lost lost their nose or their well, ears. Yeah. They would have had to pick them for um, adultery, which is uh obviously really quite brutal.
0: As as seen in the scene in the Last Kingdom, I believe. Yeah. Was was it name Judith? I think her name was. Judith, yeah, she had ear yeah. taken off, yeah. So, um, is that, is that, am, I, am I, can I interject now, Mr Viking? Yeah, no, of course, yeah. Uh, so, um, I think it's worth pointing out just for the, that, uh, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, were a West Germanic people, um, so the language they spoke, um, was, it uh, was, was Proto-Germanic or West Germanic, depending on, uh, where you want to go, so, uh, various germanic languages uh norse for instance is also germanic but coming off a different part of the family whereas uh german for instance high german which became uh the zwei drei german, um comes from the same daddy language um so i think it's, it's important I, I find the language thing very interesting and i've done um quite a lot of research on this as you know i already i already um Unable to uh, pronounce some words, you know, noticeably "ship," "scip," and I think the most the most interesting thing with Anglo-Saxon, old, well, Old English, let's call it that because it's better to call it Old English, is uh, when you actually see it written down, uh, it's often quite baffling. But when when it's actually spoken, you can you can understand much better um, where where the person's coming from, uh, and I think it's I think it's true to say that. Uh, Roughly 48% of all the words in use today come from Old English. Um, And uh, one of the things I find very fascinating, um, I've been fortunate in my life to... I could probably count to 100 in about 10 languages, I would say. Um, And, and of course, um, if if you take uh, German, uh, the German for 12, for instance, is zwelf, which is Z-W-E-L-F-L-E-L-F, whereas... uh, whereas for instance an anglo-saxon uh would say twelfth. T W t w e l f um so it's it's um i think it's you know it's quite fascinating how how language um evolves and so um to be honest you know uh cuz i've i've sort of taught myself a bit uh, to talk to hundred in welsh for instance in the last year uh and the 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 words for the you know the welsh words like pedwar would be uh, one of the numbers obviously it doesn't mean anything to, to, to us at all in terms of uh construction you know this you know that that that, that number that, that word has no uh, derivation in any language i've certainly ever ever been taught whereas if you look at um old english so one for instance is an uh three is tria; uh f- five is fief six is six uh, and then you get to twenty, for instance, which is 20. and then you say an und to und 20 three and 20. So I think I think what's what's very interesting about that is um, I, I, I mentioned it on a on a on a uh, another um, on another uh, live stream this morning, and uh, when I when I quoted that, the people in 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 the audience that could speak German said, oh, it sounds that sounds like German. Um, and it does to a point, and I think the the more relevant thing is it's more to do with the construction. Um, if if any of you have got a little bit of time, go and have a look at how, for instance, an Anglo-Saxon would say something like six thousand five hundred forty-one. It's absolutely extraordinary. They couldn't just say. Um, so the Romans, for instance, would just write down probably you know four or five Roman numerals to say that. The Anglo-Saxon language was so cumbersome. They actually had to say something like six thousand and five hundred and one and four lots of ten you know that's that's literally mm-hmm. what they sort of what they would have said you know and um, yeah. in terms of how they would speak so instead of saying um uh hello callum would you like to have a drink with me they would say callum like to me drink you know the verb would go at the end um, I, I, so you know instead of saying Sally kicked the ball they would say Sally the ball she kicked you know, yeah yeah see what I mean yeah um so I think I think that's uh, that's really really interesting so um I think that's probably set the scene I think that's enough on culture for today um, and then we're gonna sort of move um in the, in the second half of the show sort of through uh, the geography of of the time and in particular um, we're gonna the exciting um exciting bit about the, the Viking invasion uh you know and obviously you and I both being a little bit Viking it's quite quite exciting in our roots so um just painting the scene um so the oldest English kingdom is Kent um and to start off the Kent was the dominant um powerhouse in um in the whole of England and very interestingly I know a, a, a character that you're uh very keen on that you're going to talk about quite a lot later Egbert um who who was obviously of course the grandfather of king alfred um egbert was actually supposed to be the son of uh, a kentish nobleman called uh i think his name was el roman el- 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 or something like that uh that sort of name um I must admit, I'm a bit confused as to how being the son of a Kent, Kentish man got him to be the king of Wessex. But uh, we, we might find that out next week. And if you don't know today, if you could find that out for me, because I... no, I, I already know. I already know. Oh, that's that's fantastic. So we, we, if you we'll do that in context, rather than jump around. So um, yeah. So Kent started the period as as a dominant kingdom, um, and um, and then. Over the period we're in, it sort of declined in its influence, not least because obviously it was quite a small kingdom. Um, And then, uh, you know, you had, roughly speaking, the Angles in in East Anglia. Um, The Saxons themselves, of course, were were in Essex, uh, Sussex, and uh, what we don't call Wessex. Um, The Dukes, of course, were in Kent, and um, the Mercians would have been uh, a sort of a, a combination, but the Saxons mainly as I say, were in Essex, Sussex and and Wessex. So over over the period um, after the Kentish domination, Mercia took over as the powerhouse uh, in in, in England. Um, And certainly uh, in the period prior to the Viking invasion, uh, Mercia was a very large kingdom covering most of the north of England, a lot of the north of England, certainly the the sort of North Midlands, whole of the Midlands, um, places like Gloucestershire even. Uh, Gloucestershire, Shropshire, these sort of places Herefordshire would all have been um, places in, in Mercia of course the, probably the dominant character of the period we're in today would have been Offa um, and it's and I say it's only really um, when we get to uh, the sort of early part of the 9th century where Wessex starts to take over so, um, yeah, so what are your thoughts actually... on that then Callum yeah so um yeah, I think it's. I think it's Im-
1: important to note that um, you know Mercia and, and Wessex early on on the whole were pretty, you know, pr- pretty friendly with one another. It was always much more seen as um, sort of Mercia against Northumbria and stuff. But um, I mean, at Northumbria, Mercia's um, fate was always sort of fluctuating because mm-hmm. it had so many borders with potential rivals. Mm-hmm. Um, to the north, Northumbria, you know, it's wet. Wh- to the west, it's the Welsh Kingdoms, um, you know, traditional a- enemies of the Saxons. I mean, to its east, East Anglia, and to the south, Wessex, um, which were probably, over the whole course of, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon England, were, were the least aggressive towards Mercia. Um, Mercia was probably the, the kingdom that was most consistently at war
0: mm-hmm.
1: on the whole. Um would you like me to give you like just like a a, a little just brief synopsis of of uh, all the kingdoms, just so everyone sort of gets an idea?
0: Yeah, as long as it doesn't get in the way of our Viking bit, of course.
1: No, of course. No, I just want to say so. Um, Northumbria. Northumbria was a region that stretched across the neck of northern England and covered much of the east coast and parts of, Scot- parts of modern, modern Scotland, so it would have ended about where Edinburgh is today, yeah. um, but Edinburgh would have been within Northumbria. Yeah. Um, modern York was at its southmost border, um, it was formed in the 7th century upon the unification of Bernicia and Dara, um, the northern and southern parts of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um the kingdom was traditionally at odds with Mercia, both consistently raided each other's lands and sometimes launched full-scale invasions. Um as you said, Mercia was a large kingdom, um the most dominant up until Wessex really came into its own. Uh Wessex was sort of seen as unstable but fertile country that covered most of the southwest. Mm-hmm. It was bordered by the Celtic kingdoms of Cornwall to the west. Mercia, its north, and Kent to the east. As was the mode of period, Wessex was constantly at odds with its neighbours and actually dwindled as Mercia began to take some of its lands before King Egbert rose to power in the 8th century. Um, Ninth century. Its economy Sorry. and strength grew under Egbert with the acquisition of Surrey, Sussex, Kent, and Essex. Um, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there, so I'll, I'll leave that for, for later. The last big kingdom, obviously, is East Anglia. Mm-hmm. Um, which was the smallest of the kingdoms, but powerful during the reign of the Wuffingast dynasty. (laughs) Um, By the end of the 8th century, however, it had been subdued by the more powerful Mercia. Um, East Anglia briefly did reclaim their independence in the 9th century, but very swiftly after that were conquered by the Danish Vikings.
0: Okay, so um, I think probably at that point, uh, I suppose it's it's quite quite an irony in this, isn't there? Because... um, uh it'd, it'd be interesting to know whether the people at the time considered themselves to be sort of uh settled English if you like of course there was no such thing as english really, but um you know settled or whether they could see the irony that they themselves were invaders um and that they they had only been in this country for uh, a comparatively short period of time, well you know at the most probably three hundred years by the time that the viking um incursions became quite. Uh, significant shall we say because um, in many ways the Vikings were simply doing nothing other than what the Anglo-Saxons did themselves um, Yeah. so tell us a bit about why the Vikings came over where they came from, what sort of people they were, how they were perceived what their behaviour was like and whether they um, whether they uh, deserve uh, quite the, the bloodthirsty sort of image and reputation they have today
1: yeah, well, I think I think they do and they don't. I do think, um, as you said, it's um, massive to point out that um, they were no different than the Anglo-Saxons, really, the Vikings. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, culturally in terms of their DNA, I mean in terms of exactly their, their approach to, to Britain as a whole. Um, so uh, I, I know that nowadays, actually, some historians argue that the Anglo-Saxon the Saxon invasion was maybe more brutal than than the viking one now that's obviously up for debate and we spoke a little bit about that last week and obviously nobody knows for sure with the with the current information but um the vikings would have come from northern denmark um norway and sweden Um, you know their lands were very very harsh hard to farm Um, but you know they by the sort of the eighth century the vikings had made pretty good networks um, and they were used to trading with, you know, everyone from the Mediterranean, you know, back and forth. So they were aware of Britain, but they'd never really, they'd never really landed there before. And obviously, it's all good and good and well saying they knew about Britain, but that doesn't mean that, you know, some some chap that built a boat in Norway yeah. would necessarily know how to get to to England, you know. Um, but I think it's what's interesting is is most people think of the first account of. Um, the Vikings coming to uh, Britain as Lindisfarne. But um, apparently that's actually not the case. Um, the first account of a Viking raid in Anglo-Saxon England comes in from 787 AD, when three ships from what at the time was called Horderland, which is in modern day Norway, landed in the Isle of Portland on the southern coast of Wessex. Mm-hmm. They were approached by a uh, Thane called Bierdeherd. Um he was the Royal reeve from Dorchester, whose job it was to identify all foreign merchants entering the kingdom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when, it, when he approached them, they simply just killed him. There yeah. was no, no chatting or talking about it. They just killed him. Um, and they think that between then and Lindisfarne, um, it is likely that there were other raids. You know, a lot of records obviously have been lost, yeah. so it's hard to know for certain. Um, we do know that soon afterwards in 792, King Offa of Mercia began to make arrangements for the defence of Kent um, from raids perpetrated by what he described as pagan peoples. So I think it's safe to say that Vikings were already making um, a name for themselves before the 793 AD um, famous attack on Lindisfarne.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So the the Vikings um, primarily came from two countries, didn't they? Denmark and Norway. Although, interestingly for such a small country, I believe uh, the Danish influence was greater. Is that right? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, as you see in in shows
1: like um, The Last Kingdom, and obviously, I'm not saying that you know The Last Kingdom you should we should watch something <laughs> like that for all of your historical knowledge because things are obviously glammed up a little bit. Um, but you know, the history is loosely pretty co- correct. So, I mean, the the Anglo Saxons would have referred to them um, the Northmen as Danes the most of the time because that's what what they were. You did have a lot of Nor- um, people from Norway, obviously, as I mentioned. Those those people that killed. That Saxon thane, when they they came mm. to Wessex shores, they were from modern day Norway, but they were largely known as the Danes, and as we know, um, as as uh, people with a lot of Manx blood, it was the Danes that settled the Isle of Man, and I actually think it's really interesting t- to mention, um, and I don't think this this point is um, often got across, um, but Anglo, um, the Isle of Man is actually by far the best place to find Viking Archaeology on the whole of the British Isles, okay, by far, both in terms of quantity, um, quality, yeah. So and you know, but it's it's
0: mainly yeah Danish. Okay. Yeah. So no, um, no Swedes. That's that's, that's interesting. So I wonder what the Swedish were up doing. I think
1: they're no, no. Apparently there were Swedes. It's funny because you don't hear much account. I think no. Probably because the the Anglo Saxons. Wouldn't have known the difference between a Swedish person and a Norwegian person, as probably neither did the Norwegian and Swedish people most of the time. <laughs> but um, we do know that there are there's a group of thirty runestones that was found in Sweden, mm-hmm. um, which refer to the Viking Age voyages in England. Um, they constitute so one of the largest groups of runestones um, in the world, um, and they are comparable in number only to the approximately thirty, you know, Greek runestone collections, for example. Um but yeah th- these 30 runestones that were found in Sweden um re- you know refer directly to the the um the voyages and the invasions of England so we know that Swedish people did go there and they returned to Sweden afterwards and they they writ down the tales of of what happened
0: there so did the um did the viking let's call it the viking immigration did it follow the same sort of pattern as the previous Anglo-Saxon one with Uh, warriors first followed by settlers or or was it was it rather different
1: yeah yeah it it would have it would have been like that i think it's worth mentioning that the viking invasion was obviously nowhere near as smooth as the anglo-saxon invasion the anglo-saxons pretty much moved in and said like i'm i'm the daddy here yeah you know there's a new daddy there's a new sheriff in town um whereas yeah you know the vikings they sort of picked picked around the, the coast um around where from from the uh south coast to the sort of the northeast coast you know everywhere really they sort of picked away little invasions here and there um they often targeted um christian sites i think it's worth mentioning you mm. know i think sometimes um uh the the vikings were almost seen as like anti-christian yes they, they didn't they, they could care less about christianity the only reason <laughs> that they they uh they targeted these sites because they were undefended. They didn't specifically do it to be like you know devil worshipping anti Christian mm. folk.
0: Yeah, it was, think... it was purely. Sorry. No, yeah, I think I think it's worth pointing out that um, uh, it's interesting because the Anglo Saxons, of course, themselves uh, originally had exactly the same beliefs with no difference whatsoever. The gods were exactly the same gods. The superstitions were the same superstitions. Probably the songs they sang. Um, uh, and the sagas would have been very similar or the same sagas. And of course, what happened, um, over, over the period we're in today is the, uh, the indigenous Anglo-Saxons became largely a Christian, uh, people, uh, which set them in very stark contrast to, uh, the invading, let's call them Vikings for convenience now. And certainly in the Anglo-Saxon chronicles and in the, in the writings available of the day, uh, the the anglo-saxons themselves very much saw uh, themselves as the civilized christians fighting against these sort of um terrible um horrible uh pagans uh and and it was sort of incumbent upon them to uphold uh god's god's law sort of thing and i think the 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 vikings quite rightly just sort of laughed at them and uh obviously believed in their own gods and and as you say, they opportunistically, you know, the church has always been very good at building up wealth. Uh, they have disproportionate wealth. And so they were the obvious place to attack to get the wealth. So anyway, um, so in, in 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 our remaining slot for today, I think we have about 15 minutes to go. Um, be good to talk about um, the areas of England that the Vikings, well, not just England, of course, because the Vikings are still uh highly uh influential in places say the isle of man orkney um and of course later on later on uh, ireland uh arguably the 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 capital of viking europe was dublin um certainly by the time we get to the ninth century so Uh tell us a bit about um which parts of england in particular that the vikings settled in and and how their how they settled how it expanded and, and and how their land was referred to at the time
1: yeah sure um just quickly before i get into that i do you know really want to hammer in that point you made about how similar the viking people were to the anglo-saxon people sort of only like 100 or 200 years before the vikings came it's, it's um i mean christianity at the time um not to be rude, was um, very, very pompous, <laughs> you know, and it had a it was. It was so um, fear-based. I mean, the only reason that these these monasteries and stuff weren't defended was because people were brought up to be so afraid of God that you know nobody would dare ever take a gold coin from a, a monastery or something like that because you know they would be told you know read verses from the Bible <laughs> talking about you know Abaddon sure. the angel yeah. of death coming to flay them alive or whatever and that would be enough to turn you off wouldn't it yeah but um whereas the vikings obviously as you said just laughed at that they, they believed in their own gods they thought that the christian attitude was was very silly um and probably i spent a lot of them actually thought it was quite brutal which is funny considering um how people perceived them mm. but yeah so the the vikings um raided linda's farm other other noteworthy places that they raided was um iona in scotland iona abbey off scotland's west coast It was attacked several times, 802 AD, 806, 68 um, people were killed. Um, The devastation was so bad um, that the community at Iona abandoned the site and actually fled to Kells in Ireland. Um, In the first decade of the 9th century, Vikings raiders started to attack um, the coastal districts of Ireland. By this point, the Danes had um, pretty much taken over the Isle of Man. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note, though, that there was... um, it, the invasion of the Isle of Man, it wasn't. It wasn't. I want to say it wasn't brutal. There would have been a lot of men that were killed, hmm. but the Viking men married all Manx women. Hmm. It's not like they brought their women with them and they all suddenly made it its Viking Isle. So the, the Isle of Man, to this day, they very much can see themselves as sort of like a a Viking Gaelic people, and yeah. it, it, that, and uh, you see that very much in um, their society. Um, So I've been to the um, Manx History Museum several times and they've actually got a very, very good exhibit on the the Viking era um, that talks about how, um, you know, how men obviously would have been out hunting and fighting and stuff like that. And women would have brought up the children learning both, you know, Manx and Danish, Manx Gaelic and Danish, and the language to a certain extent did intertwine and they would have taught them about the Manx um, history. And stuff like that mm. but then obviously the father would have came home in the evening and would have told them all the sagas and the stories that they would have grown up with in, in Denmark so it wasn't quite it wasn't like savagely brutal mm. um, I think um, getting back to the point um, so sort of the invasion really started to take place in sort of about 865 896 AD um, the the Norse attitude towards the British Isles changed from sort of like a pillaging mindset um, for, uh, to a place of potential colonisation. Um, as a result, large armies began to arrive on Britain's shores as opposed to sort of pirate bands. Um, obviously, Norse armies captured York, which was the major city, York, kingdom York. of North Korea. They captured that in uh, 866. Um, counter-attacks concluded in a decisive defeat for Anglo-Saxon forces at York on the 21st of March, in 867, and the deaths of Northumbrian leaders Ada and Ospert took place. Um, Other Anglo-Saxon kings began to capitulate to their Viking demands and surrendered land to the North settlers. Uh, Many areas in eastern and northern England, including all but the northernmost parts of Northumbria, came under the direct rule of Viking leaders or puppet kings.
0: Yes, I think... um uh, eventually, we end up with um, a very large part of England referred to as the Danelaw. Um, so, Mercia was basically cut in half. Uh, I think it was called the Five Kingdoms. Um, I can't remember that. I think it's Leicester, Stamford, uh, Derby, and two other towns I can't remember today because I should have done my homework better. But um, So, I think, <laughs> I think um, yeah, i say Mercia... Uh, saw about half of its land taken by the Dane law uh, so yeah. you effectively almost had the original uh, north-south divide uh, and that actually very much has continued to today um, so if you think about um, I, I think of a good a good um, example um, probably one of the greatest rugby league players of all time was a guy called Paul Scolthorpe. Uh Sculthorpe is a is a is a is a viking name for instance you know um so if you look at the if you look at the place names in the north they are almost uh almost predominantly viking based names the people are more viking based and you can see actually a slight difference in 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 uh genetic makeup i think profile um of course you only get people like you and me who are basically like neither one thing nor the other we're like you know all sorts uh you know so I, I i've got i think every every single part of dna from a british person you could have so you know we're able to cross over Interestingly, but... what what surprised you
1: was um you actually had a, um, a dna test didn't you a couple of years back hmm. and what you were surprised to hear was actually predominantly you did actually have norse dna didn't you
0: well i had only eight percent english dna that was a, the most interesting thing yeah was it? it? was almost. It was almost like seventy percent Norse or something, wasn't it? Something quite crazy. Like well, really, like well, well, they obviously don't know where North European is. Uh, you know. Is, yeah. Is, so, um, you know.
1: But it insinuates obviously. Sort of. You think you you obviously what comes to mind is is Denmark, Norway, and
0: Sweden, no, I don't, doesn't I don't, it? I don't, think, I don't think it was seventy percent. If, if, if I remember rightly, it was um, something like thirty odd percent Scando and thirty percent y uh, That's yeah. So I'm, I think it might have been like forty percent Viking, thirty percent. I yeah. remember
1: thinking it was predominantly. Yeah.
0: So I'm, 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 you know, according to the DNA test, I'm essentially a, a, a sort of a Viking Gale, uh, much more. I think, than, I think it's. I think it's important to mention though that very, very much
1: British. By by, obviously, the time you get to the the end of the Viking era, anyway, you're very, very much a British person. You don't really, um, go out of those shores much, do you? You're either, um, Norse um gaelic which is obviously you know people associate more with places like ireland's the Ar- the isle of man and stuff but very much gaelic norse with some anglo-saxon with some ancient britain which is very obviously relevant to our our show
0: yeah i think um you know sort of building for the future of course th- this whole eight-part series uh builds right up to that cataclysmic sea change in english and british history when we have the norman conquest and, of course, you know, one of the things that's fascinating, which I'm really looking forward to talking to you about, is is actually predominantly the, the perception uh, of people in history about what happened there is fundamentally wrong because that whole battle eventually, uh, essentially, was won between uh, Viking-dominated peoples against Viking-dominated peoples. And, of course, you know, what, what, what happens uh, very much through the period we're in and certainly coming out the other side is that... Yeah, you you start to get this concept of Englishness, uh, as opposed to hello, I'm a Saxon, you're a Dane. Uh, people start to, to to sort of work together. Um, but of course, um, bringing bringing today's show to an end, we um, so we've got a situation effectively where uh, the Vikings have come, uh, they're powerful. Um, we haven't really mentioned uh, the appeasement policy. The first Neville Chamberlain of of England um so the 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 incumbent kings uh used to um to pay them tribute which was called dangeld um mm-hmm. so basically it was like we'll give you all our money if you bloody don't leave us alone you please yeah sure. uh, and of course the vikings would take all the money and then a year later they'd come back go sucker uh sail back up yeah. sail back up the river and do it all over again um which just goes to show that, you know, giving in to, to, to blackmail and, 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 and that sort of thing is never a very good recipe. So we end no. up in a situation where the Vikings are um, certainly by, say, uh, 870, <laughs> looking quite pretty. Uh, they're sitting there dominating uh, half half of what's England today, I would say, and... Um, and you've got the Mercy and Influence uh, retreating. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Egbert. So um, yeah, just sure. very quickly, if you could just do... Because uh, most people listening to this won't know who Egbert is. Um, yeah, so sure. If you could just do a, a two a two or three minute little summary about the importance of King Egbert, please, Callum.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I know that obviously the show Vikings has become very popular. So the King Egbert that we're talking about now is is the same King Egbert from the show. So as I was saying about the last kingdom earlier it, it, it's a good base for learning your history but um you know take into account that everything's glammed up a little bit um, but the, the king egbert that they show in in the program is very much the king egbert of history um he what you were saying a, a second ago about how you know the attitude that of to the vikings of you know pay them some money hope they go away was really absolutely rubbish because as you said they would just come back a year later and um and um slaughter everyone and then ask for some more money. But I think King Egbert was undoubtedly a very, very strong man, a very powerful man. Um, it, he was the grandfather of King Alfred the Great, mm-hmm. and there is no doubt that King Alfred wouldn't have been the man he was without his grandfather, and he'd certainly had a lot of his grandfather in him. Mm. Um, by the time um of Egbert's death, he was actually he, he was written it was written that by his enemies that he was king of all britain so that just goes to show you what his enemies actually thought of him of i mean these are from direct yeah these are from just dist- direct historical accounts but a real quick rundown um he was born in kent um and when uh, king beatrich of wessex died in 802 he basically said i want to be king of, yeah. of, of wessex my my ancestors were the richest and the most successful kings of wessex even though I was born a Kentish man mm-hmm. so I think that I, I uh, have the best claim yeah. um the, the the Mercians though supported an, another man um and basically said Egbert you better get lost or we're going to kill you <laughs> so Egbert went into exile and actually lived with Charlemagne um for, for um, many years um Charlemagne supported Egbert um but basically not enough to intervene on his side militarily um but uh Anyway, Egbert returned from exile um, and became king of Wessex when the, the Mercian supported king died. Um, he then, in 825, um, won a decisive victory over King Bjornwulf yep. of Mercia, Ellendon. Yep. Um, this is when Wessex became the dominant kingdom yep. um, and pretty much would do onwards from that. Following his conquest of Mercia, Egbert controlled all of England south of the Humber. Um, in 829, Egbert defeats the Northumbrian king at Dawn near Sheffield. In 830 AD, Wigliffe of Mercia revolts, um, but Egbert subdued him. In 830 AD, Egbert subdued all of northern Wales um, and was recognised by the Welsh as the overlord of England.
0: The North Welsh. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. In 836, Egbert suffered his only major defeat, it um, actually took place in Somerset which is obviously relevant for us. For anybody li- listening that's not aware, we are Somerset people. <laughs> so Edward was defeated by the Danes at Carhampton in Somerset, which was a big blow for him at the time, and a lot of his army was destroyed. But um, he made a big comeback in 838. Um, the Cornish made an alliance with um, the Danes, mm. and a huge Cornish and Viking army came up um, from um, the southwest. But Egbert de- completely defeated the whole um, Cornish Viking army and basically sent them sent them running back to Cornwall. Um, just a year later, uh, Egbert died and was succeeded by his son Ethelwolf. Yes. Um, but I think you know the most um, relevant thing for us, you know, what we were saying about you know when the Danes invaded uh, what is modern day Carhampton. It was called um, Charmouth at the time. Mm. Uh, they um, they had a fleet of thirty six ships. Um, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle entry for that year states how a great slaughter was made there, and the Danes remained masters of the field, indicating a significant me- victory for the Viking raiders. So it really was a blow to Egbert at the time, but it sh- yeah. it, it shows the ca- his character that completely unfazed.
0: It, within a year, he had completely reasserted his dominance. Okay, I think. Um... Yeah, so it was nice to see the passion for the character there. Um, So wrapping up to today, I think we're in the final minutes now. So um, I think uh, so. You know what we've 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 seen Wessex emerge as the powerhouse uh, of of England, but in in highly troubled and difficult times. Um, And by the time we get to uh, 878, which is where we're going to start next week's show. Uh, We have a situation where the the English, if if they exist, are in complete disarray. Um, And where we're going to leave you today is um, King Alfred becomes the King of Wessex. Um, We're doing a a complete whole special on King Alfred next week. So you have to wait till next week to find out everything about him. Um, So for today, we're just going to set the scene. Um, So King Alfred has become the King of Wessex um and uh his early his early uh, reign was to say troubled would be uh, an understatement and certainly by the time uh we get to the end of today's show uh Wessex's prospects of triumphing would have been as bad as England's in the Second World War I would say I think that would be a good comparison um and so by 878 we have uh the the, the the Wessex army is in complete disarray um the whole of the structure um of, of Wessex has disappeared all the other kingdoms don't exist because they've been subjugated by by the danes and uh Alfred himself has to retreat to the marshes of Somerset which i'm very I'm very very proud about um centering around a, a place called Athelney. And of course, because in those days, Somerset was so largely underwater, uh, people would travel around pr- principally on coracles, etc. And uh, it was very, very easy uh, to hide. So so Alfred, uh, with an unknown number of retainers, retreated to Athony and um, and basically sat there uh, and, and just hoped. Uh, it would be interesting to know, you know, there's no, nobody will ever know uh, whether he he actually thought realistically he was going to be able to to triumph. Um, so we end today um, with with Alfred in uh, Athelney burning the cakes, or did he? Uh, Eng- the, the, the prospect of England as a, a nation is in tatters. Uh, it looks almost certain that Vikings are going to win, uh, and that today's show would have been talked to you in Norse, but we'll see what actually happened won't we Callum? well i have to say um that's a really good job um it's always fascinating to listen to uh the vast knowledge you have of your subject and um it's lovely to see the passion um that comes out when you're talking about things you really believe in so uh thank you very much callum um so I, do. I think it's it a, it a really good tour of uh, the period from 600 up to 878. Um, we hope you liked it listeners. Um, we've We've basically uh, got really good theme music today as you'll see so I hope you really like it. Uh, it's called Blood Swan, and uh, I think it's it's quite relevant uh, for the period. So until next time when we see the fight back of the English and the true emergence of us as a nation have a great week. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.